0: Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall reflect on the legacy of 9-11, meaning the War on Terror, the Patriot Act, our collective PTSD, and how it all reinforced the idea that as long as we can point to having an enemy, then it means that pretty much whatever we do is right and justified. And just as, as we get started, I'll, I'll say that while researching this episode, it occurred to me that at this particular moment in time on this anniversary 911 bisects my life i was 18 years old 18 years ago on 911 and to be honest i haven't Processed that enough to, uh, to to draw any any conclusions or 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 have anything thoughtful to say about it, other than that you know as we're going to hear in the show that 9/11 is thought of as this pivotal moment where you know America in many ways lost its innocence, and pre-9/11 was thought of as this much more carefree time, and that is. Very often how people feel between their childhood and their adulthood. And for for me and my generation, it literally is the difference between my childhood and my adulthood that uh, pre 9-11, you know, it, it wasn't just carefree because I didn't have to worry about which horrible war we were about to head into or what repercussions was going to come from this uh, massive society altering event Also, I was just like hanging out in high school, dicking around, trying to figure out what I might want to do with my life. So it's just a little bit of my story. And it's just one more of those instances where I I feel like I'm the last generation In so many respects, I'm a member of one of the very last age groups to be able to remember before the Internet, to be able to remember using corded phones in the house regularly and a whole variety of other uh, of these aspects of life that uh, changed massively in my formative years. And it turns out that, you know, I'm one of the youngest people to have been around pre 9-11, but with a, you know, a nearly fully formed brain to kind of like absorb what life was like before that era. And, and as we'll hear mentioned, at least briefly in today's episode, imagine what it would be like to be younger uh, than I am and to have grown up in a post 9-11 world and never having been able to truly experience a pre 9-11 world. It's something that I think is really hard to imagine for those of us who did live through it and and maybe even harder to imagine what kind of effect that will have on on people who are growing up, having never known anything other than, you know, our current level of let's say, intensity around politics and foreign policy. Now, just a quick note before we get started, a reminder that if you want to support the work we do, only two bucks a month gets you an ad-free version of every episode if you want to just chip in a little bit. But full membership gets you that, plus members-only bonus content. It's got extra clips and commentary and, and bonus episodes that only members get to hear. And we're in particular need of members right now. There's more independent Progressive media available now than ever, which is great. But at the same time, there's less and less emotional energy available to consume it all. And so we've actually seen a drop off in in just in the past few years in listenership and donations. So if you are listening now, it means that you are weathering the storm and making it a priority to listen to thoughtful progressive media. So I hope that if you get value out of this show and you can afford a few dollars every month to support it, you can sign up at Patreon.com/slash BestOfLeft or visit the contribute tab at BestOfLeft.com. And now onto the show. Clips today come from the Brian Lehrer Show, the Mother Jones Podcast, the Real News Network, Project Censored, Home of the Brave, This Is Hell, Pod Save the People, and Jacobin Radio.
1: Hi. Um, I have um, for a long time thought about how tragic it is that George W. Bush was the president when 9-11 occurred. It's secondary to that that I wonder whether or not he was attentive enough to the warnings that led up to it and whether he's in part the cause. But that aside, um, I feel secure in thinking that had Gore been the president, we would have faced this challenge or this event, however you want to look at it. In such a different way, and I've often puzzled with friends over conversations about whether or not we would have even gone to war, whether we would have the phrase "the war on terror," whether we would have homeland security, and just how many things flowed from nine eleven that um, were particularly
0: neoconservative,
1: and just what would have a, what would a world look like where. Or was the president when nine eleven happened, and I'll take my answer off the air. Thank
2: Jim, you. thank you very much. And Heather, I'm going to go right back to you on this as a former Clinton-Gore administration official, and of course, we can never really know the answers to those questions, but are they things that you've thought about?
3: Oh, um, all of us who, who worked in government at that time think about it a lot. And look, we all because we all knew the people who were career officials who had stayed in government, who tried to give the warnings in summer 2001. We all hope and believe that they would have been heard, heard, listened to. But I also want to say that, that the the plotters were that was a really brilliant and mm-hmm. determined plot. And I do, I th- and Al Qaeda was determined to pull something off. Right. So I think there would have been an attack. And then the second thing I want to quickly say is that I think because of the way partisan politics unfold in our country, what we would have, you would have had eventually some attack under a democratic president, which would have been responded to in such a massive horrifying Democrats have failed. Nothing can ever be safe again, that we then might have eventually have had an overreaction that was at least as bad, if not worse as what we did have just because of the way that security issues have gotten soaked into our partisan politics. Right. Kaplan.
4: Well, that might be true. I'll just, I'll just present the other side just to present the other side. Uh, it's true, you know, Gore was listening, even when he was vice president, to certain people in the White House staff and the CIA who were warning, you know, their, their hair was on fire, warning that al-Qaeda was about to launch an attack inside the United States. Uh, what kind of attack? Where? How? Nobody quite knew. I think Gore would have been taking some of these intelligence issues a bit more carefully. So it's worth noting that the first NSC meeting to even discuss al-Qaeda in the Bush administration, was I believe it was September 4th, 2001. I mean, there wasn't even a discussion of it. Whereas Gore would have had nine months – he was quite aware of what was going on. Uh, what he would have done – I also think Gore probably wouldn't have invaded Iraq. Uh, who knows what he would have done about Afghanistan if, um, if, if if the attack on World Trade Center had gone through uh, – I mean, yeah, d- alternative histories, they're very good in helping you isolate what is the key cause of a particular chain of events. Like if you remove this factor, mm-hmm. would everything have been done? But in terms of predicting what would have happened without that factor, it, 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 it's, it's, an, it's an intriguing game, but, uh, but you it's know, a parlor we game. can't replay it. Yeah. So let's take
2: the Afghanistan war from each of your perspectives, Bobby first. Was the U.S. right to start it, and has it made anything better or worse?
5: I think uh, once the Taliban decided that they would not give up uh, Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda, I don't see that the U.S. had very much choice. Um, I think we we now know, but I don't know whether uh, this is merely hindsight, we now know that taking on a larger project of trying to, uh, create a, a an ideal nation out of afghanistan i don't know whether that was necessarily the right call but i don't think uh, any president would have had uh, an alter an option but uh, to respond to 9-11 and to the taliban's intransigence
2: with war and has it made anything better or worse
5: um, it is. It is no. It is not. Not in the in the long uh, arc of history. It's pretty clear that it has made uh, many things worse. Um, and you can draw straight lines as well as dotted lines from Afghanistan to uh, ISIS to the kind of terrorism we see now. To as we said earlier in the show, the, the bloat of the national security infrastructure, um, trillions of dollars, thousands of lives, American tens of thousands of. Uh, Lives around the world. Um, But it, but. It need not have come to this. I, I don't think just because we went to war in Afghanistan, all these things were inevitable consequences. There were many steps along the way where other decisions might have led to other outcomes. Fred, so so the Afghanistan war itself is not directly responsible for everything that has come since.
4: Yeah, I I think any president would have uh, would have had to have invaded Afghanistan. I have to say that the way that this was done in the early stages. Mainly coordinated through the CIA, was was very novel and and successful. That people forget the the fact of having armed drones. They had just been invented. They hadn't been fully tested by the time we first used them in Afghanistan. That made a huge difference. The, the coordination of that with uh, Afghan rebels and very small special forces units, uh, it, it it worked. Then a new commander came in who had some ideas about very small-scale counterinsurgency efforts, helping the Afghanistan government get back on its feet, a new Afghan government. But that got no resources. Bush turned his attention entirely to Iraq. Afghanistan was ignored. Uh, the Taliban came back. And then, uh, you know, based on really overstretched notions of how successful counterinsurgency was in Iraq, we got this notion that we could do anything and put in this enormous counterinsurgency effort without knowing anything about Afghan culture, history, politics, tribal relationships. And, uh you know, it probably led to more corruption, uh, a, a bigger reaction. And, of course, in the meantime, the war in Iraq uh, – uh, led to the utter destabilization of the Middle East and all the horrors that, that we've seen since. Probably the biggest strategic blunder, uh, in, in, I'd say in U.S. history. Uh, is that plus the fact that, that Afghanistan was just ignored. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think it was, it's, it's been a complete disaster since.
6: The attack did seem for a brief period of time, perhaps all too brief, to bring the country together. It had this psychological effect of both freaking out the nation, but also um, making us realize uh, what were important differences and what were not important differences. But that did not seem to last too long. What do you think about the long-term effect of 9-11 on those levels?
7: It's a a tough question because I think you see um, all manner of political decisions that grew out of the fear and trauma of 9-11 that ultimately – backfired in you know historic and tragic ways in in many ways sort of caused not just the the rise of sort of division inside the united states again but but even around the world Um, you know you sort of look at the way that the world looked at the united states in the wake of 9-11 uh, versus, you know, how the world looks at the United States after we did all of the things that we did after nine eleven.
6: Um And you're talking mainly about the Iraq War. Uh, uh,
7: the Iraq War. Um, and Guantanamo. Guantanamo, and- the, the black sites, Abu Ghraib. And this gets lost in all of the debates around NATO today. Um, you know, the one and only time that in the entire history of NATO that the alliance has invoked Article 5, the attack on one being an attack on all, was to come to the aid and assistance of the United States after 9-11. One of the most remarkable parts of that day was how uh, helpful Vladimir Putin was. Um, yes, th- that, yes. Um, the old, Vladimir, the old Putin. Vladimir Putin. I mean, this was sort of still first-term Vladimir Putin, but Russia – Uh, Russia was conducting a big military exercise that day. And uh, one of the first calls to the White House, one of the first people that Condoleezza Rice spoke with that day was Vladimir Putin, who called to say, we are standing all of our military down. We are grounding all of our planes today. We want you to know you don't have to worry about Russia today. And, uh, you know, sort of uh, that experience, uh, you know, is just literally unimaginable to us today. As is the idea that in the weeks after nine eleven, you know, President Bush had a ninety two percent approval rating. I mean, uh, it, it, it's hard to think of anything in America that has a ninety two percent approval rating eighteen years later.
6: Now, towards towards the end of the book, you have a quote from Lurdes Baker was a tenth grader at the time of the attack, and she says it was the first time I completely understood that nothing is simple. some things never make sense, and sometimes horrible things happen for no reason at all. It was the end of my childhood now I found that really interesting because is that the lesson you think Americans gathered that sometimes bad things happen for no reason at all because you know there was reasoning behind this. I mean, this did happen for a reason, not a good one, obviously, but it wasn't a random event.
7: That that Lord's Baker quote comes in the chapter talking about uh, being a child and a college student on 9-11 and sort of how transformative you see that event being for the generation who experienced it as one of their earliest memories. And I do think it has had a very profound impact on that generation who, you know, did not see – the US, for instance, as the victor of the Cold War, as it was for people born in the 1970s, um, or for people like me born in the 1980s, um, you know, the US was the victor of the Gulf War, that we were sort of the force for good in the world. And I think you see, sort of, for this generation that has come of age with 9 11, that that wasn't really necessarily the case, that America has not necessarily been the moral force for good in the world um, that we have told ourselves that we were, at least in previous generations. We're sort of beginning to see a different uh, moral frame and understanding of the united states come of age as this new generation comes of age and enters our politics
6: one of the saddest quotes that i found i mean there are lots of sad quotes in 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 the book but um came from a man named vaughn alex Mm -hmm. who was the ticket agent at washington Dulles. International Airport, and who helped two late-arriving passengers make it on to Flight 77, the one that crashed into the Pentagon. He said, I had this wild thing in my mind that everything that happened on September 11th was my fault, personally, that I could have changed it. I felt there was no place for me in the world. There were all these support groups, and I didn't belong there, because how do I sit in a room with people that are mourning and crying, and they're like, What's your role in this whole thing? Well, I checked in a couple of the hijackers and made sure they got on the flight. I might go weeks or months and everything would go along fine. Then there would be something that would trigger it, like checking in somebody who said, my husband got killed on September 11th. What I heard was, you killed my husband on September 11th. You don't really move past it. And I wonder to what degree um, it's possible to and to what degree we as a nation have and haven't moved past it.
7: it it's clear um, looking through these stories and, and reading and listening to them uh, that, you know, there's a, an enormous amount of, of personal and, and national PTSD still in our memories of nine eleven um and of course that was really just at the dawn of our understanding as a society that PTSD was a thing um, you know this this yeah. was this was not a diagnosis that was really well understood after in the immediate aftermath of nine eleven I think that this is something that uh, we are still clearly struggling with um, you know for all of the reasons we've discussed i mean nine eleven was the hinge upon which our modern world turned, and it was for many of us, a formative experience, um, a, a tragic experience, whether we were, you know, personally touched or not, um, and, and a really challenging experience uh, for people in terms of their own personal faith, you know, for this generation who is coming of age today. Uh, in a world that has been shaped and made uh, by 9-11 and all that has followed to not understand what that trauma was like, I, I don't uh, you know, it, it's unfathomable to me how you understand America in 2019 without understanding that Tuesday morning in September 18 years ago.
0: Today's episode is sponsored by Blinkist, the app that's here to help you read more books than you thought possible, or at least get the core insights out of them. And it's just like how I curate and distill the most important points about political issues, Blinkist does that, but for thousands of non-fiction books, condensing them down into just 15 minutes for you to read or listen to as audiobooks. And right now, I happen to be in the middle of researching an upcoming episode on mental health, both Trump's Trump's and ours and so the blinks uh, available on stoicism just jumped out at me as as maybe particularly relevant right now. You know, if we ever needed a way to maintain mental calm while persistently pushing towards progress, as the Stoics advocate, uh, now is that time. So you may want to check out the Blinks of uh, The Daily Stoic, How to Be a Stoic, or Meditations from Marcus Aurelius to get you started. You can check out Blinkist for yourself for free. For a limited time, they have a special offer for our listeners. Go to Blinkist.com slash Blinkist. Best to start your 7-day free trial, that's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash best to start your 7-day free trial, and of course you can cancel any time. Blinkist.com slash best.
8: We just observed uh, another anniversary of uh, 9-11 here in the United States. And in your book, you talk about how uh, the idea of America being uh, the arbiter of good in the world is used uh, in in tandem with absolving America of its crimes in the world and how that shapes how we see uh, how policy plays out in real life. Now we have the commemoration of September 11th here in the United States, but there's another September 11th that is actually connected to everything you just said uh, in 1973 that doesn't get talked about, and this feeds right into everything you talk about in your book. So could you could you make the argument that it's this narrative of American exceptionalism and American innocence that has erased? the coup in Chile on September 11th, 1973, that has paved the way for how we've responded to September 11th, 2001, and this endless war narrative that we are continuing to live.
1: Yes, there is definitely a direct connection. What happened on September 11th, 1973, with the overthrow of Salvador Allende through a CIA-backed coup, a bloody coup, which cost the lives of tens of thousands of people and disappeared thousands more in Chile. What it did was it instituted Milton Friedman's neoliberal model across South America and Latin America and the Caribbean, and uh, it instituted shock therapy, shock and awe privatization. And this is the model that the U.S. ruling class across both parties has attempted to export uh, both domestically and around the world. And this is the model that has created the crises that we are seeing right now, which led into the response to 9 11, which was a crackdown, not only on the uh, nations around the world who challenge US hegemony, right? The invasions of Iraq, the invasion of Afghanistan, and the creeping encirclement of Russia and China, which came out of the war on terror. We can also see in the United States the cracking down on dissent the uh, cracking down on whistleblowers, the jailing of whistleblowers, the massive surveillance state that was developed after 9-11. All of this served to legitimize a narrative, uh, which was American exceptionalism on steroids that was uh, implemented in 9-11, first by the Bush administration, continued under Obama, and still continued under Trump, which posits that the U.S. is under threat from a foreign entity. And Russiagate has served as another step in this process, when the war on terror has been largely seen as illegitimate, as having all of these negative consequences for broad swaths of the global population, not only the endless wars, but many Americans are not happy with the massive surveillance state. So what we see is Russiagate taking that next step in labeling the new mission of American foreign policy as a great global power confrontation. And that American exceptionalism now has been reframed as the need to preserve the institutions of the United States from the Russian boogeyman in order to justify the encirclement of NATO, of Russia uh, through NATO, as well as sanctions against Russia, and also the increasing uh, surveillance of the left. Black Agenda Report and other left media has been clumped in with the so-called alt-right to be suppressed all over the internet through social media and uh, through uh, uh, web searches on Google. So all of this is to say that, yes, there is a direct connection between 9-11-1973 and 9-11-2001 in the fact that the model, the consensus model for austerity and endless war was ultimately propagated by the notion of American exceptionalism And it has not been talked about because there is this uh, there is this drive among the ruling class to ensure that the institutions of propaganda and media and education system uh, continue to pair at the same line. To the point where we even have progressives like AOC and Elon Omar on Twitter talking about how uh, Trump was wrong to cozy up to dictators. It gets that deep, where even the most progressive elements aren't able to see beyond uh, the trees and into the forest.
9: I'm fairly certain that most of the... Additional powers that were granted to the executive, as well as to the different Alphabet agencies since 9-11, have never reached what's called a sunset clause. Essentially, a national emergency was declared on 9-14-2001 and has been renewed by the executive branch every year since. And Trump renewed it on September 10th, 2018. And here's a quote from that document. Quote, because the terrorist threat continues, the national emergency declared on September 14th, 2001, and the powers and authorities adopted to deal with that emergency must continue in effect beyond September 14th, 2018. Therefore, I, Donald Trump, am continuing in effect for an additional year the national emergency declared on September 14th, 2001 in response to certain terrorist attacks. And I think that the wording is funny. Because why don't they just say 9-11? They were given powers. And in Washington, D.C., when you're given power, you're not going to give it up. And it's going to pass on and pass on throughout administrations. So whatever powers the executive has been given, they still have. Also, there's something called the authorization for use of military force that was written after 9-11 to go specifically after those responsible for 9-11 and that is still in effect. So all of the wars, every single military action we've done in the name of the war on terror, the AUMF, or the Authorization for Use of Military Force, has been used as the legal justification for this. And the Smithsonian released a map that showed we are operating militarily in 80 different countries in the name of the war on terror. And that AUMF, is also used or has been used as a legal justification for things like warrantless wiretapping or indefinite detention. The Supreme Court just ruled they're not going to hear the arguments having to do with indefinite detention inside of Guantanamo Bay. So many things that we hate about the national security state are legally justified by the authorization for use of military force. And I know that Barbara Lee is trying to have them rewrite a new one so that the old one for 9-11 can't still be used. No. I say no. No more authorization for use of military force. We don't need it anymore. We've killed enough innocent people in this world in the name of 9-11. We don't need to do it anymore. We don't need to kill more people. So I say no to what Barbara Lee suggests. As I said, every war that we've taken part in or every military action has been done in the name of 9-11 and has gotten us to this point. So if they want to create a new authorization for use of military force for, say, something like war with Iran, no, just no, no more war.
0: Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed, which can help take the coloring of your hair to the next level. For decades, women have only had two options for coloring their hair—outdated at-home color or spending the time and money on a salon—but now you can get gorgeous professional hair color delivered to your door for less than $25. Self-image is an important thing, so it's no surprise that many Madison Reed clients have commented how their new hair color has improved their lives. Madison Reed delivers gray-covering, game-changing color you can do at home and look as if you came from the salon. Women love the results. Gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. What makes Madison Reed color unique is that it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm to create over 45 gorgeous, multi-tonal shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com, and best-of-the-left listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with the code LEFT. That's code LEFT at madison-reed.com.
2: There was a turn, starting from when I met you in Majar Sharif in northern Afghanistan, and especially when we started learning about how hundreds, if not a thousand or more, of the Taliban That surrendered had died had been killed or suffocated to death or otherwise dead in those container trucks remember that yeah right i that was when i began to realize this whole thing was not not correct because we're going to war and we send how many american soldiers did i see on the ground in northern afghanistan 20 15 let's be really generous and say 50 and this is just... Come on, we know this. This is not how you fight wars. Doing this whole thing on the cheap, Donald Rumsfeld, oh, all we have to do is insert our operators, our special operators, our special forces, and then the local guys will do all the work. Well, hey, wait a minute. Right? Like, sure, they'll do all the work. They'll do the fighting and the dying for the most part. And that means, you know, our boys don't have to do the dying, especially. Fine. But it means, then, that when war crimes are committed under our watch, that we are also responsible. So we had hundreds, maybe a thousand or more Taliban dying under our responsibility, the United States of America. Let's say the Americans didn't know and didn't see, but they should have been. Because from the moment they landed, it's your war, baby, right? Right. I mean, you can't just say, "Oh, yeah, the Afghans do things their way; they throw people into wells." It's not my problem. Yes, it is your problem because you've just landed with your Chinook helicopters and your special forces and your air power in so the you skies above. I started to see it going back then. I started to see it going bad then, and I realized that this is not how an empire should behave. I don't even have a problem if we, as Americans, said, "Okay, you Taliban guys are really bad." Here's a trial, and in fact, here's a death penalty. You four are going to be executed for having thrown other people into wells, you know? And you 10 are going to spend the rest of your lives in jail, and you 100 are going to spend five years in jail. I do not mind if we do that, okay? I mean, maybe I do. Maybe I don't agree with it. Maybe I think, okay, this is still an unjust way of whatever, but I get that. I understand when empires do that, right? You invade a country. You take over You say, you people pissed us off, we're in charge now, we're going to do things our way, and part of our way is a rule of law, right? The British. The British, the French, okay? And, And look, I'm not excusing any of the evil things the British and French did over hundreds of years of imperialism, but they had a system. We don't have a system. Our system is shambles.
10: You've seen it.
2: I've seen it. We've seen it. We've seen it. We saw it in Afghanistan. We saw it in Iraq even more. And I I, I utterly think that Americans are perhaps uniquely unsuited for postmodern empire. Really? Yes.
10: Why? How can you say that?
2: Because we are the same kind of people that, yes, this whole thing. You cannot combine safety first with fuck you. They don't combine well. Choose one. If you're gonna choose safety first, okay, right. We're gonna we're gonna create a society the nanny state, whatever you wanna call it. Some people have bad words for it. Nanny state. Yeah, you know, cradle to grave, whatever, welfare state, gotta wear a bike helmet. You know, can't don't run red lights with your bike, don't jaywalk, you know, eat well, organic gardening, higher gas mileage, hybrid cars and uh um, Versus, fuck you! We are a superpower. We have nuclear weapons. We have an industrial base second to none. We still make weapons and tanks. We still know how to train soldiers, second to none. And you know, you get in our way, we're gonna, you know, we'll teach you a lesson. Kiss the ring. And yet, and yet, we try to combine those, and that's the problem.
10: I see.
2: Huh. And I saw this Somewhere in Iraq, in the
10: middle, and the result
2: is the result is poor. Because people, A, don't understand where we're coming from because they don't think either of these ways, or if they do, they've chosen. And and number two, look, we are in this incredibly weird situation in Iraq, for example, where we have killed thousands of civilians, unarmed civilians, in friendly fire incidents. Why? Because they ran through a checkpoint without realizing it it was there. My late colleague, Chris Andros photographed one such incident some of the most harrowing images of the iraq war of this little girl crying after both her parents were killed in their car going through a checkpoint by accident the americans just lit up on them it was poor lighting conditions it was at dusk you know right i mean you know how light is is funny at dusk right this car comes these american soldiers are like who are these people they say stop Nobody stops. They say stop. Nobody stops. They say stop. Nobody stops. Light them up, and and they shoot the car. You know, 120 times. The two adults are kid are killed, and the child is 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 covered in blood and 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 screaming and crying because she's just her parents have just been killed. Right. So that kind of incident happened in Iraq and Afghanistan, and countless times in these last 20 years of war. And you can say, okay. Part of that just happens in war. it's regrettable it's a mistake. fine, that's okay, but you can't combine that with you know and with this whole thing of we're not going to fly the American flag in Iraq because it'll offend local sensibilities. We are not responsible for local governance because we are not an empire. We are simply helping out, and the Iraqi police and military and government runs these things. You just have all this disproportionate, you know, on the one hand, not being tough enough where it might matter, and then on the other hand, being way too tough and ways that just are are destructive
11: how much do you think if we if the uh, american public was thoroughly well informed about even the long term costs of war which seem to be very uh not very well understood how far do you think that would go having the knowledge of actually how much we do spend on wars how far would that go to us not being as supportive of going to war because it seems like people don't seem to really care about the defense budget constantly going up that it actually wins you votes.
12: Well, I think there's a a kind of conflation of patriotism with people going out to put themselves at risk for you. I don't think that we necessarily have to believe that. It can be just as patriotic to say that uh, we should be defending our borders in a way that's actually self-defense. And it could be just as patriotic to say that we shouldn't send people to places where they've been at stalemate, such as Afghanistan, for about a decade. We're losing ground stalemate is a kind way of saying we're losing ground in Afghanistan. It's not winnable. Um, so that is patriotic to say that it's time to think about the connection between what our goals are, the strategy, and the costs and consequences. No public policy policy should go on for a decade and a half without some accounting of whether or not the benefits, if there are any, are worth the cost and the risks. And we haven't seen a real good accounting of that. But the other thing I think you're getting at is whether or not the American public understand the consequences of such high military spending. I think it's really hard to wrap your head around it. But one thing that uh, um, people are in favor of military spending sometimes say is it makes jobs. And if we don't spend as much money, then we won't uh, have as many jobs in those in- industries. And I think that one thing that you could just sort of set to rest right now is, Military spending does produce jobs, but not as much as spending in other things. If you spent a million dollars, and we're spending seventy billion this year on the wars, but if you just spent a million dollars on defense industries, you'd get seven jobs. If you spent that same million on something else like healthcare, you'd get fourteen jobs. So multiply the fourteen jobs per billion. That we're spending—that's fourteen thousand jobs. Or for the seventy billion, that's nine hundred eighty thousand jobs, right? And that's not the most productive thing that we do in terms of creating jobs. That is healthcare spending. Secondary education produces nineteen jobs per million. Again, we're spending seventy billion for fiscal year twenty nineteen, and that's gonna—that could have created one point three million jobs, right? So military spending is not a productive way to help an economy. In fact, it's, it's destructive because it takes resources away from the things you really need. And the biggest threat to America right now may be climate change. In fact, it probably is. It will kill more people than the attacks on 9-11 did. And it will certainly put at risk coastal economy, just look at the latest report, again, by the U.S. government of the consequences of climate change, and you'll see that we really need to be diverting our resources into green energy and preparing our agricultural systems and other systems for what's coming.
1: You
11: ask for, obviously, and your study is about trying to get more transparency when it comes to the costs of war, uh, the costs of the post 9-11 wars that the United States has engaged in. But, uh, how, you know, and we do need that kind of transparency when it comes to costs, but we really can't figure out if those costs are enough, if, or, are uh, adequate or too much. If we don't know what the benefits of those costs are, and I don't really hear, there doesn't seem to be much transparency when it comes to those benefits. We're just told that we're being protected from some group of nebulous terrorists who may we may or may not have stopped coming into the United States. We may or may not have set them up. We have no idea what these things are. So is just as much a problem when it comes to transparency of costs Do we are we having just as much a problem when it comes to transparency of benefits of the war on terror?
12: You you ask a really important question. When you look at, for example, the Department of Homeland Security, they'll tell you how many container ships that they've searched, but they don't tell you what they found. Right. It's like knowing how many nails are in your house, but you don't know how many rooms you have. Right. I don't need to know how many nails I have in my house. I need to know if the structure is sound. And it's it's the same thing with um, the war in Afghanistan. At some points, we've been told that there were several thousand terrorists in Afghanistan. Then we were told that the numbers went down. And then more recently, we've been told the numbers went up. So it's not about, in fact, whether or not the strategy is working. It may actually be counterproductive, right? In other words, the things that we're doing to make ourselves more secure may, in fact, be creating people who don't like us and are willing to fight against us. So I I don't know if the right question is effectiveness. I wonder is how much is this strategy actually hurting us? But in terms of Homeland Security, I think we need much more understanding of what are the threats that they've identified? How have they dealt with them? Is the money that is being spent on Homeland Security for these counter terror missions, actually what's accomplishing the work that needs to be done in, in terms of protecting United States, if that's the case, then we need to really rethink this tremendously expensive set of military adventures in not just Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria and Pakistan, but in in dozens of other countries. In fact, we don't even know how many countries we're in because that's secret, right? So yes, we need to understand this better, and we certainly need to understand
11: effectiveness if these strategies are, in fact, effective. So uh, we uh, went into the uh, post-9-11 wars. We didn't raise taxes. We cut taxes. We didn't issue bonds. Instead, we are doing all of these wars on credit, which is going to make them a lot more expensive than the wars would have been had we issued bonds or raised taxes instead of cutting taxes and not issuing bonds. So uh, how... Is this unprecedented? Is this, and and like who's making money off of our interest on these loans?
12: Um, well, it is unprecedented. In every prior war, going back to the Revolutionary War, people have been asked to, or told, you need to pony up, you know, give to the government, pay taxes, or they've been asked to buy war bonds. And this is the first war Set of wars where uh, they haven't actually raised taxes, as you noted. There was a brief period when you could buy Patriot bonds, but those bonds disappeared after a couple of years. Um, and I'm, I'm sure they've come to maturity by now. Probably, I don't really know. There weren't that many sold, but you're right. This is a credit card war, and the costs are mounting in terms of just interest payments. So. We've already paid $716 billion, I think actually more, to, to pay interest on the borrowing for these wars. Now, if you go back to 2001, the United States was in budget surplus. After the wars, the United States went, the, the wars began, 2001, 2003, all these other activities across the globe that are associated with the war on terror, and increased Homeland Security spending, the United States went into deficit. And we've been in deficit spending every year since 9-11. Now, deficit spending isn't good, so and it's not sustainable. That's why the U.S. borrows. The U.S. borrows internally from other parts of the government and pays back those parts like Social Security, for instance, with, uh, that pays the interest on that borrowing. The United States also borrows from other countries. China, Japan, uh, and anybody else who buy U.S. bonds, okay? So when the United States has to pay, let's say somebody, some country calls in the loans, not just for U.S. military spending, but all of the the borrowing we've we've done, the United States is in a precarious position, but the world economy would be in a precarious position if that happened. So it's unlikely that all that debt will be called at once, but it is really damaging to have so much money just servicing a large debt. It's, uh, it's like as if I, I put $20,000 in my credit card and all I did was pay $200 a month, the, the debt's not going away. And I don't have that $200 a month, um, to do something else that I could do much more, uh, which would be much more productive for me.
10: So my news is an article by Mother Jones that's about the Patriot Act warrants that is referencing a study that just came out of EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which we love. And what they note is that there was a special law passed right after 9/11 as a part of the Patriot Act, Section 213, that essentially expands the federal government's power to do what's known as sneak and peek warrants, where they can essentially just like go into your house like a no-knock warrant almost at the federal level so that they can go into your house if they think that doing something else, like giving you notice might tip you off or you might destroy evidence. And what the EFF finds is that from 2001 to 2003, this is right after 9-11, is that about 4,000 requests were processed. And then within three years, that jumps to about 11,000 requests. So there's a huge jump in just this idea of sneak and peek warrants being used. Now, here's the kicker. Out of roughly 4,000 total requests for this warrant in between October 1st, 2009 and September 30th, 2010, 3,000 of them were for narcotics cases and only 37 were for terrorism cases, like 37 total. That's around 0.9%. And then since then, the EFF notes that the number just got worse. So the 2011 report showed that out of almost 7,000 requests, 5,000 were used for drugs and only 31 were used for terrorism cases. In 2012, only about 0.6% of the requests dealt with terrorism. In 2013, 0.5% of the requests dealt with terrorism. So it was just like this real aha moment that like when the federal government asked to expand its power around terrorism, it is almost guaranteed that that expansion is going to be used for something that has nothing related to terrorism And then it made me think of, like, what would the government do if it wasn't prosecuting drug cases? That, like, the prosecution of drugs actually sustains so much of the federal government's law enforcement capacity, and that if you legalize drugs or decriminalize drugs, literally we would just undo the work of so much of policing, which is why, like, so many industries sort of rely on this language of, like, law and order. It's why police unions and other law enforcement unions do. It's why... Cities do that, like they would actually lose so much apparatus if we didn't prosecute drugs in this way.
13: I sort of anticipated that something like this might happen, but I had no idea the scale at which these warrants were being used and just how many of these were for drugs versus terrorism. I mean, as you said, Duray, it's less than 1% for terrorism, despite terrorism being its sort of stated purpose for the legislation. Specifically, this is the Patriot Act, which I think is one of those sort of signature pieces of legislation following 9-11. And this is sort of the long-term impact that we're seeing now of a lot of the panic in passing that legislation. But just seeing the growth in the number of sneak and peek warrants... The most recent data that we have access to is 2013. But just consider that in 2010, there were about 4,000 of these warrants. In 2011, there were about 6,700. In 2012, there were 10,183. In 2013, there were already 11,129. So we've gone over the space of four years, we've gone from about 4,000 all the way, more than doubled it, to 11,000. And it just makes me wonder how many we're at now, especially under this current administration. And I think it's all the more reason as we talk about the response, particularly to white supremacist terrorism, as we're debating this as a nation. I know there's been talk of a domestic terrorism bill that would allow the government to prosecute domestic terrorism in the same ways that it prosecutes international terrorism. But this is the kind of data that we need to be using to inform that conversation because, you know, the unintended... Consequences, I think, for many people may be intended for some people who try to pass this legislation more often than not, these types of law enforcement strategies tend to disproportionately impact people for drugs, impact people of color, communities of color in particular it would be interesting to see a racial breakdown of the data, for example, but you know we already know how the government engages in drug enforcement differently in Black and brown communities. So all of these things have to be part of the conversation. And currently, you know, this is sort of debated as an abstract or theoretical, if it's even considered at all in the public conversation around the unintended consequences of this type of legislation. But this has to be front and center to inform the debate moving forward. It is difficult to outline the myriad
14: of ways in which 9-11 fundamentally shifted every facet of American political, social, cultural, and economic life. We see it in immigration. We see the Department of Homeland Security, which didn't exist at all as an institution before 9-11. ICE did not exist at all before 9-11. The Patriot Act obviously did not exist before 9-11. And it's impossible to enumerate the amount of laws on the books, and policies, and norms, and expectations that shifted as a result of this attack. And obviously, it was you know one of the most deadly attacks that's ever happened on American soil. But it is astonishing how so many of these things that were passed, like the the Patriot Act, was passed within weeks of September eleventh happening, and it passed through Congress easily. And now, you know, we're almost 20 years out. And I think most Americans don't understand the extent to which the Patriot Act impacts every facet of their lives. I mean, at one example, there was a piece written a few years ago by a professor of education, and she was talking about this data that showed how the membership roles of Muslim student associations and Muslim student unions across the country since 9-11, how like they shrunk exponentially after 9-11 and after the Patriot Act passed. That's just something I never thought of. Like I never thought of Muslim student associations membership shrinking. And it makes sense when I think about it, right? Like I remember how frightened so many people were. People were being attacked if you looked Muslim to the extent that someone can or cannot look like a person who practices a religion, which is ridiculous, but it mostly meant attacking brown people, whether or not they were Muslim. But I think that is a single example of the. I don't even know if residue is the right word because residue suggests something passive and I think this is very active, but all of the sort of different tentacles and all the different spaces in which so much of this legislation tapped into in our society.
15: Al-Qaeda's declarations of war stated quite clearly why they were launching the war, but ironically, the very act of them launching the war, the spectacular violence of the September 11th attacks and and the prior attack on the, the USS Cole and the offshore in Yemen, Yemen yes. correct? These very acts of violence and the very way in which they are received in the US end make those very articulate declarations of war illegible and you write that this anti-knowledge isn't just structural but that it is also reproduced through practice by being acted upon in a ritual manner quote every time a new radical islamism related attack takes place a ritual of denial of the deeper political issues plays out in an increasingly similar fashion it seems to me this this enforced reactive ignorance is touted as being tough and even realistic about terrorism, which is contrasted against those sorts of analyses like the one we're engaging in now that would be characterized as making excuses for terrorism or offering an apologia for it. My question is, what is it that the
16: immediate media spectacle surrounding a specific attack does? So thank you the on the on the first the, the first point i think it's important precisely to as as you were alluding uh insist all the time that to explain um is not to rationalize it's not to justify uh, it's merely to try to understand to understand scientifically and i think that has been shrinking more and more because generally in terrorism, because of the nature of, of the deed and the violence and the killing and the kidnapping, the, the emotions take over that very rapidly, um, which is strange, because when you're looking at matters of studies of genocide, of armed conflict, generally, the same kind of questions are not asked of those uh, researchers that can essentially look at things that are far more sort of lethal, uh, as such, but it has to do with this kind of intimate aspect, which is Precisely now to your second point, manipulated um, in the fo- in the manner that it it puts a it kind of uh, creates the contours of, of of delimits the contours of the discussion uh, in in ways that are themselves political. That, that is rather than simply trying to see where this is coming from, what is motivating. And as we were saying earlier, is this about religion or is this about politics? Or is this about something else? What part of this is, is a psychological thing? What's the part of dispossession? Uh, how is this matters of simply personal trajectories? Trying to have kind of a composite picture that is based on complexity and nuance so as to precisely um dare I say move towards a closure of that as opposed to reading this as inevitable and permanent as such which is the paradox of all of this discourse that is, is it, it it see it says that it is Combating it and going to war against it, but at the same time is constantly presenting it as inevitable. Uh, whereas if it is political, if it has issues, then certainly something can be done, uh, to bring this to, and, and it doesn't necessarily mean engaging with it. It could simply doing something unilaterally that makes the phenomenon obsolete, that it no longer has a reason to exist and that working on oneself, so to speak. And the reality to, to your second point in terms of how the, the ritual itself, uh, is that we see also a trajectory. And I think we need to historicize this a little bit from the 90s to the 2000s to where we are in, in a lot of this plays out in slow motion in the 90s, but no one is paying attention. This was sort of the, the, the nonchalance decade. I, I call it in an earlier pa- uh, piece where we basically are going through this, particularly the U.S. And then we wake up after 9 11. After 9-11, a lot of what you described seems to me was a choice. Um, that is that at uh, specific policy actors, very, very well aware of what Bin Laden was doing, what Al Qaeda, the policy issues, the conflicts, the embargo years on Iraq the issue The fact that al Qaeda was basically as everybody knows an afghanistan based entity has nothing to do with Saddam Hussein and, and the connection with two thousand and three were absolutely fake and and uh, uh, et etc but there was a sense that a narrative was going to be constructed uh, Hollywood is quite guilty there very early on, and The New York Times reports this I think in an October two thousand piece. there were meetings with screenwriters that basically were going to sort of create this kind of a very nationalistic moment, uh, in terms, or rather to, to bandwagon on the nationalistic moment, which materialized anyway, um, and, and move that way. What is more problematic is that 15 years later, you have essentially a second generation that has taken for granted that narrative. And has more difficulties reconstructing it. Time passes. Data is not necessarily available, although paradoxically it's there more than ever in our age. And no one is doing really the homework, as I said. And so you run with statements like essentially, you know, these, um, theological readings, these bloodthirsty people, these religiously driven. And you work with these categories at the highest levels, again, at the highest levels of the, the sort of the most brilliant minds. And this is also, again, as I said, ensconced in uh, in the arts. Read uh, Peter Moray's recent Islamophobia in the novel. You see how, for instance, the, sort of that whole dramatization uh, finds its way in the relationship between narrative and power. We don't need to go back to Said about that. We all know how it functions. And just to finish on that, I'm struck by, for instance, in terms of the criticism that has long been part of the, the United States in a large part of its intellectuals has been missing. I mean, where is the big film, let's say, critical... Where's the apocalypse now about Iraq? You don't have... Where's the big novel that actually questions yeah. that whole thing? We don't have it. We have... We ha- You have to look, and a few things come to mind. But I'm struck by someone like Coppola films apocalypse now, three, four years after the 75 at the end of the conflict, right? Literally. And here we've been 15 years, and there hasn't been one big question... I mean, what do we have again? As I said, the Hurt Locker, which is basically rationalizing the CIA's torture, in the Valley of Ila, small stories, personal stories, but you don't have a grand statement about the drift, the post called what post rather, nine eleven securitization, the evolution of these things, and I think that's the kind of debate that we are not having or having in islands, in pockets, um in isolation well, of a, each other. A
15: political corollary to to what you're pointing out, is that there hasn't been an anti-war movement in the U.S. since the mid-2000s, and that was always mostly against the Iraq War. The opposition to the invasion of Afghanistan was incredibly small.
16: Yes, absolutely. Uh, Although I should say that I think, uh, and and maybe that's what's missing in my point earlier, I think because things need to become with this generation more personal you see that with the whole Trump era there is the beginning of a movement uh, where people are pushing back here because their identity as women as Muslims as Latinos etc are more and more directly attacked and in that sense you get a sense of this kind of push back in, 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 which is almost defensive because it's gone mm-hmm. so far in that sense. But you don't have something that would have been an elevation, which is me, for instance, walk, being involved in, in a, in a struggle that doesn't immediately concern me uh i don't know jewish americans going to fight for civil rights in in the south in the 60s you know this was a moment where somebody could go beyond their immediate uh, personal issues and make a statement about how they viewed their society and for that matter taking chances uh, with it, with their lives, as it were. And I think that, that kind of, uh, as you said, the big, uh, the, the absence of a movement, the absence of a national debate, uh, the absence of inspiration by the arts, through the arts, um, has been increasingly missing. I'm reminded, if you would, in terms of the, responsibility of a society if one could say of the title of a a public enemy album which is how you sell soul to a soulless people who saw their soul uh, in effect you get a sense mm-hmm. that this becomes very difficult to speak to a, a type of society that is itself very much has self-numbed in that way
15: though there is this political awakening right now in the u.s not to get too far afield around kind of a, a nascent democratic socialist and social democratic politics in the real child. And that's very exciting, but it's very domestically focused. And the challenge will be to link those domestic issues to an international geopolitical ones.
16: To go back to how this starts, I think there's also choices that were made by, for instance, uh, liberals. Uh, Right after 9-11, um, you see, uh, what, what someone like Nathan Lean calls today in his book about Islamophobia, liberal Islamophobia, which has really gone quite uh, forward recently. You, but you see in, in the early phase, you see people who would you'd have traditionally associated with a certain progressist view. Someone like Christopher Hitchens comes to mind, for instance, right? Cause, uh, that uh-huh. starts speaking in terms of identity. And, and gradually, or a comedian like Bill Maher, essentially, uh, getting a, in all manners uh-huh. of conversations with Sam Harris that are increasingly, in effect, basically racist about is, Islam and Muslims. And, and that creates a space there where you ask yourself, is this a, a, the, the way to go forward when clearly a terrorist attack raises for every single society around the world questions about its policy, about what it's doing and how to address that and 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 it, it is very interesting because not everybody at that time was uh was uh, going that way um i was struck and i quote this in the book again back to the pop culture element that uh that there's a very interesting subterranean uh metaphor it seems to me quite obvious that someone like george lucas is doing in the first um the prequels of star wars when he's literally writing this Oh, two, oh, three, oh, four about the fall of a republic. And he's in effect answering what the, to, to the Bush administration, what they're doing as a, to, to go back to his language as a fall in the dark side. And he speaks about how essentially his characters are going to go towards their doom by going down that road. And pop culture, if ever, uh, at, at that level of a Star Wars type, gives us an indication that the, these issues right then and there, 01, 02, 03, when Abu Ghraib is happening, when torture is being rationalized by Harvard scholars, all of those things are taking place at a moment which will be studied 50, 60 years from now as a moment in the early 21st century where the United States was unable To essentially deal with the trauma of the 9-11 attacks as a terrorist attack and adopt the the type, I think, of reaction that could have avoided the drift into securitization that we are going through and which I think is still deepening uh, and might even get worse in the next decade.
0: We've just heard clips today, starting with the Brian Lehrer show discussing the origins of the so called War on Terror. Mother Jones explored the mental and societal impacts of 9 11. The Real News Network explained the connection between 9 11 and the myth of American exceptionalism. Project Censored explained the ongoing impact of the AUMF, enacted three days after 9 11. Home of the Brave spoke with a war reporter on the American Empire. This Is Hell dove into the costs of our post-9-11 wars. Pod Save the People looked at the crime and punishment repercussions of the Patriot Act. And finally, we just heard Jacobin Radio discussing the motivations of al-Qaeda, which are completely invisible to most Americans. Members this week will hear additional clips on the fact that most Afghans don't even know what 9-11 is or why Americans are in their country. More on American exceptionalism— John Stewart's testimony to Congress shaming them for failing to fund 9-11 first responders' compensation, and more. Plus, as always, more voicemails from members. To hear that and all of our bonus content, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash Left. And as I mentioned in the last episode, I have way more voicemails queued up for the members' show than I do for the main show, so much so that I don't have any voicemails to play today. I do have a, a, a message from a listener I want to share, though. So th- this listener wrote in a week or two ago, actually, at, at this point, and just wanted to share an article in response to our recent episode on climate change, and the article is titled, Despairing About Climate Change read this. And it's from Earth Island Journal. And uh, I I did a quick search, and there's a bunch of articles sort of along these lines talking about climate-related depression and so forth. So that's sort of a separate issue. But what I want to talk about is what the listener said in the email, along with a link to this article. Speaking of sending in voicemails, the listener writes, I'm a regular listener and have never called in to leave a comment. I appreciate what you've said about not being afraid to call in and that you will edit things to make the person sound intelligent. The reasons I have not tried calling in is having been castigated and laughed at in the distant past from making comments back when I was in grammar school. And ever since, I've been shy about speaking up. This affected my ability to move forward in my career, which is a moot point now. Basically, I think that my opinions don't count, that they're stupid, and I don't even try to think about formulating questions or comments anymore. So if you never hear from me by phone, it's not because I'm not interested in your topics, I've just been beaten down and am afraid to voice my thoughts." Unquote. And... I, I think I think everyone listening should immediately agree that that is a, a tragic state of affairs for this person, but I am certainly not qualified to give advice, but I'll just tell some stories of my own, which have to do with sort of lingering mental, you know, not mental problems exactly, but like hang-ups in my life. That I have had that that stem from sort of the same era the listener is, is referring to grammar school uh, you know sixth grade fifth grade back in that uh, time and and there's a story that like I've never told on the show because there never would have been a reason but there was this uh, this very formative moment in my childhood when. You know, I was probably in fifth grade or so, and I didn't have a lot of close friends who lived nearby, so I saw my friends at school a lot. And then when it was the weekend or, or anything like that, I was sort of on my own. I lived in the suburbs. I, I rode my bike around the neighborhood a lot, and, you know, maybe I'd go to the school and play pickup basketball with whoever happened to be there, not Generally, people I went to school with and and there was this one particular day when I was riding around just like literally trying to figure out what to do with my time and a group of kids from my school uh, rode by. They were one year older than me and they weren't my friend group, but I kind of knew them and I sort of just said like, oh, hey guys, like funny seeing you here. Like, what are you up to? Mind if I hang out? And they were just sort of riding around being kids. And so I rode around with them for a while. And literally the most bizarre thing of my childhood that I can remember began to happen. So the the sort of understood-to-be leader of this group, one by one, started calling his friends over to whisper something in their ear. And, you know, I... Didn't really think anything of it. Uh, like It's a little strange, but, you know, we'd like ride around and then we'd stop and do something, and, but he would call over another friend and whisper something in their ear. And this went on, it, you know, there may be maybe a group of five of them or something like that. And so eventually, you know, we, we got to a point and we stopped and one by one, everybody said, hey, um, actually, I, I, I got to go home. Like, I'll catch you guys later. But it, it was, like, a very strange, and in in retrospect, I mean, like, I figured it out pretty quickly, but uh, sort of obvious. I mean, like, they were sixth graders, so they weren't, like, the most cunning people in the world. And, and so, one by one, each one of them went home, or, you know, so I thought, and left me just like, okay, like, see you later. You know, we're, we're heading home. And uh, in this particular instance, I don't recall... If I like saw them again later hanging out, but uh, details are not important. The point being I figured out pretty quick. Oh, they planned this. The leader of this group planned this whispered into everyone's ear. We need to ditch this kid. (laughs) And, but you know, they were like, Doing it in the sixth grader version of polite where they try to ditch me without me realizing what's happening. So I guess I was nice and and friendly of them. But that stuck with me until I mean, I I think I was like deep into my 20s, uh, deep into 20s, maybe late 20s before I had this like flash of realization. Oh, wait a second. Those kids were in sixth grade. You know, so, like, in, in all the years between, I had thought to myself, like, I had this sort of vague fear of, you know, a, like, not abandonment, abandonment like a parent, you know, that's a different feeling, but, like, this feeling like people my own age don't want to be around me, don't want to hang out with me, That's you know, I'm not sort of like worthy of having trustworthy friends that like all this stuff stuck with me from the age of 10 to whatever, 25 or something like that. And only as a full blown adult looking back on it, did I finally have the realization, Oh, wait a second. That's total bullshit. Like, of course I shouldn't let that hang over me because those kids were 11 years old and you know, I, I I've always thought of them as sort of bullies for having done that, and you know, and there there was like maybe one other instance where something kind of similar happened with that same group, and, and I just thought like they're mean or bad or whatever. And the truth is, like, yeah, I mean, they were probably dicks because they were eleven years old, and I was also a dick because I was eleven years old, so it doesn't really matter. And and so when I think back on myself from that time. I cringe, like I don't like the person I was as a kid because I was a kid, and like little boys are sort of assholes and say and do terrible things all the time, and so I I regret all those things about myself, and then it took me a long time to figure out. Oh wait, everyone else was like that too. They weren't fully formed humans either, and they all probably grew up to be perfectly pleasant people who if they remember doing something like that at all, probably had a huge amount of regret about it and thought, oh man, what a dick move. And, and, and so, uh, you know, all, all of this is just sort of my, my version of responding to this listener who has hangups from childhood that I very much understand the feeling of having weird mental hang-ups from experiences that come from childhood. But the realization that like flash of realization that I had really broke the spell. And, and so I, I just hope that by sharing that kind of a story that it'll, it'll uh, make some things click into place for some other people as, as you relate to your own stories from, from childhood and whatever traumas you may be bringing with you, w- which reminds me, you know, like Amanda and I talk about this all the time. Some people are broken, but everyone is damaged. So when we, you know, you know, Listen to people talking about politics or debate with someone about, you know, whatever it comes up over and over and over that, you know, everyone's coming from their own perspective and like the surface level of that makes us think like, oh, you know, your identity helps shape your personal uh, perspective on politics. But like it's not just that like people's personal experiences, even things that they have never told anyone about can play a huge role in how they experience the world, how they relate to it, how they talk about it. And so, so the, I, you know, the advice is, like, be gentle with people. Be gentle on yourself. <laughs> Forgive yourself for things you've done a long time ago. Forgive others, especially for things they did a long time ago, because chances are you have no idea how they turned out, and and it's probably not, you know, that that, like some monstrous image you have in in your memory and in your day-to-day exchanges be gentle to people because you you never know what they've gone through and you know as i said like i you know thinking back to my 11-year-old self i certainly don't like that kid i think he's sort of a jerk and as painful as it is like i kind of get why that group of kids who were more, like, super goody-goody. Like, I, you know, I describe them as, as like, I felt like they were sort of bullies, but that, the reality is, they were, like, super goody-goody kids, and they probably thought of me as a bad kid. Like, like I wasn't a bully, but, like, I might have been mean, or I might have been crass, or I might have, uh, you know, not fit their version of, you know, what a good nice kid looks like, or sounds like, or talks like, or, you know, whatever. So, like, Again, in retrospect, I sort of understood why they may have acted that way. Um, But then fast forwarding, it was only within the last few years. Uh, Keep it in mind, I've been doing this show for, you know, not quite 15 years, but getting there 13, maybe. And I feel like I, I did this show for like seven or eight years before I felt like my personal opinion was really worthy of being heard. So I consider myself a person whose opinions should not have been listened to not that long ago. And, you know, I've come to recognize that our opinions and our ability to understand the world is, is something that is constantly developing. It is never something we achieve that we are always people in progress. And, you know, my, my perspectives on things change all the time, which is the opposite of a sign of weakness. You know, it's, it's good that I'm constantly evolving and changing, which means once again, To be forgiving of things that I used to think because that's how it works. I you know, if I'm going to change my opinions, I better be forgiving of the person who used to think something else who then grew up to be me who, you know, thinks what I think now. And and then just last note on this in a sort of general politics sense and engaging in the world uh, sense. I'm constantly having to remind Amanda who reads a lot more stuff on the internet than I do, that the dumb obnoxious people are also the loudest. So the people who are writing the comments on Facebook or, you know, doing whatever else that is, uh, you know, giving her an anxiety attack because she's reading the internet. Those are the people who, as I said, (laughs) the the dumbest and the most obnoxious are often the loudest and we have to remember that they're not representative of humanity. That that's that's what leads people to read things and say, "Oh my God! Like humanity's awful. People don't know anything. Like we're never going to get out of this." And I I always have to remind her, no, no, it's not that no one is thoughtful. It's that most of the thoughtful people don't bother speaking up, which I think perfectly describes the listener. For just I've only gotten this one email from them, but. From everything I know, first of all, they listen to Best of the Left, which that's not like a self-congratulatory thing. I mean, they listen to a politics show that goes into deep, tough issues, and then they read long, thoughtful articles from a website called Earth Island Journal about how to deal with depression related to climate change. Like, This is clearly a thoughtful person, and the fact that they say you know i i don't feel comfortable speaking out it's um you know not not to i'm certainly not trying to diagnose or anything but you know the the dunning-kruger effect certainly comes to mind that the smarter a person is the more they are likely to think that they are normal and not really worthy of, of chiming in because they think well you know I know what I know, but everyone else knows it too. And, uh, you know, I, what makes me special? And the dumber a person is, the less informed a person is, the more they tend to think of themselves as an expert who needs to be heard on any given subject. So, so, <laughs> you know, advice, not just to this listener to remember that actually you probably are one of the smartest people around and also to people like Amanda and anyone else who panics when they read people's comments on the internet, just remember, all the smart people are keeping quiet. They're there. Never doubt that they're there. They're just so smart that they think, why would I waste my time commenting on the internet? (laughs) That's where humanity goes to die. So that's my advice on, on this general subject from every possible angle that I could think of. As always, if you'd like to comment on this or anything else, I would love to hear it. Uh, The number to dial, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen so coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of washington dc my name is jay and this has been the best of the left podcast coming to you every tuesday and friday thanks entirely to the members and donor to the show from bestoftheleft.com.